Hi, this is Kara Swisher. For companies to succeed today, they need builders, and builders need tools that allow them to innovate. The problem is most cloud vendors don't offer the range of tools builders are looking for. Amazon Web Services gets what it takes to build what's never been built before because that's what Amazon Web Services is doing every day. Amazon Web Services is a leading cloud provider giving builders the reliability and security they need. Amazon Web Services was the first to introduce cloud computing over 10 years ago. That helps everyone from the smallest startups to the biggest global enterprises build their own applications and manage their workloads. By listening to what builders want, Amazon Web Services is adding more features and services than any other cloud provider while consistently reducing prices. So if you'd rather focus on building a business over building an infrastructure, check out podcast.aws. To learn about how Amazon Web Services can help you build a better future today, let the builders build. That's podcast.aws. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That's me. It's powered by digital media. That is a real company with a funny name. I'm here with Jay Rosen, professor of journalism at New York University. Normally I ask people if I got their name right, but I know I got your name right. I know mm-hmm. I pronounced it correctly. Yes, you did. Okay, good. Depending on when you're listening to this, we're either a day away from Donald Trump becoming president or more likely Donald Trump is president. Jay writes about really journalism and sort of how the press interacts and, and the economics of media and, and sort of the practical ways the media could get better. Mm-hmm. Um, it's great to read it under all circumstances. He's, he's crucial reading right now as we head into the Trump era. And you seeded this with me a few weeks ago. You wrote a couple posts. That I guess there were tweets you turned into posts. Prospects for the American press under Trump. Mm. And spoiler, you're not optimistic about the prospects for the American press under Trump. I'm not. No. The, the beginning of your, your essay is, how bad is it? Bad. Uh, and at one point you say, uh, darkest time for press since World War I mm. when the Alien and Sedition Acts were around. Something you should Google if you're not familiar with the Alien and Sedition Acts. So we're not going to bum people out for the entirety of this podcast, but it's, it's dark and heavy stuff, Jay. You don't feel good about the prospects of the American press under Trump because... You have many reasons, but is there one overarching one? Because we have in power a figure who got there in part by whipping up hatred of the press, coupled with massive mistrust of the media and of institutions and leaders generally, and an organized movement to discredit mainstream journalism, which is part of the Trump coalition. So you put those together with other things that have uh, been going on for a long time that you've talked about on your podcast, the economic crisis in in news and bad habits in the press that have been building for a long time. Uh, you put it all together and uh, it's a dark time, not in the sense that there won't be great stories to report. There will be a lot of great stories Because this, this is one of the, the counter arguments, especially actually we've seen this week. Actually, we're going to do great stuff. Yeah, there will be in a lot to report on, and there will no doubt be spectacular revelations and investigations. Uh, it may be the most fertile time for investigative journalism you know, since Watergate. So that's good. That's good. But that news and those reports will emerge into an environment that is hostile to journalism. And there are political enemies of the press that are gaining traction, and one of them happens to be the president of the United States. So that's the situation. It's not that there's not going to be great stories. There's going to be a lot of great stories. But 
there's a kind of rejection of them already underway. So I'm norm- normally not professor positive, but for the sake of this podcast, I'm going to I'm going to try to offer a, a more positive counterargument, at least for at the beginning of this. I am so old that I can remember Ronald Reagan and then the subsequent presidents, many of whom used um, a, uh, an opposition to the press as, mm-hmm. as one of the ways that they got elected. So it's not a new idea for a candidate, especially a Republican candidate, to say the press is biased, the press is against me, um, stick it to the press and vote for me. That's not a new idea. Going over the heads of traditional media is something, again, that sort of has been around for a long time, started with Reagan, didn't start with Reagan, but has been accelerating over time. Right. Um, so is Trump in a, a, a new thing or he's just a sort of culmination or is there something really, really different about what's happening now as compared to Reagan or Bush or, or some of the other people we've had in, in office? Well, I have kind of a complicated answer to that. It is a culmination of things that have been going on for a long time. You could trace one strain of it back to Spiro Agnew and his attacks on the media in 1970. He's the um, vice president under Nixon. Right. Sent specifically out by Nixon to go beat up the press as a way to sort of yeah. shore up support for the rest of the Nixon mm-hmm. administration. But I think what we're seeing now is, is typical of countries that have slid into authoritarian rule where – Conditions that have been around for a long time that have been frustrating to people for a long time, uh, sources of anger and resentment, coalesce around an individual because that individual happened to show up on the scene. And it could have taken 20 more years for that to happen or it could have happened 20 years ago. But it didn't because the person didn't arrive at the right time under the right conditions. So... I think that's one thing is, yes, these things have been going on for a long time, but there wasn't an individual who surfaced to embody them in the way that uh, Trump has. Uh, Second, resentment of the mainstream media dates back to Agnew, as I said. Many presidents have made use of it. Republicans especially have been amenable to that. Now we have something more extreme in the sense that we have a semi-organized movement of people who, who profit from that and who continue it in um, the institution of Breitbart, in talk radio on the right, in an, an activist core on social media that shouts down uh, news reports and attacks journalists, uh, and then uh, a Trump machine that profits from that and coordinates in a way with that because the Twitter feed is sort of – his Twitter feed is sort of like – central headquarters for that in right. a way. And so it's it's the combination of all of those things and the built-up frustration with the political parties, with political elites of all kinds, and with, um, with the national news media, which doesn't see itself as part of the political class, even though it is. I'm going to continue to try to be positive for a little while longer. So the president doesn't like the press and there's a big chunk of the population, probably not the majority, who shares his views. And maybe he's even being actively hostile towards the press and we've seen him denigrate CNN and BuzzFeed and, and do that weird stagey press conference. And, and he's been doing stuff like that throughout the campaign, putting the press in a pen, encouraging the, uh, his audience to sort of jeer at them. So – you don't have to be popular. No one is preventing them from doing what they want to do. Um, there are more ways than ever, more outlets than ever to reach people. Um, the stuff you were talking about, the social media stuff that the Republicans and the Trump folks have, have done a really good job of harnessing mm. is all available sure. to anyone of any ideological stripe. Yeah. What's the big deal? Well, if you think things are fine, you're welcome to that. <laughs> that <laughs> view. But in addition, to, in addition to what I have I've said, 
We have another strange thing that's happened that I don't think anybody really understands. We don't even have a good language for it. Part of what I'm trying to do in my writing right now is just find ways of describing this part of it that will make any sense at all. But in, in some way or another, reality seems to have weakened as a constraint in politics. And we don't just see this in the U.S. It's happening in Europe as well where the whole idea that there are common facts that everybody has to accept just because they're facts and we can disagree, disagree violently about them. About the cause and what they mean the cause and what, or to, what do to do about it. That, that idea that there are factual truths that don't depend on opinion has for some reason, which I don't think we understand, taken a hit in the West – and so, even though, yes, there are more ways for journalists to reach people than ever, there's more stories out there than ever, there's more people paying attention to different forms like podcasts than ever, it's a, it's a glorious time for journalism. There is no way for us to be confident that even the most devastating factual account of what's going on with the Trump administration will be accepted or believed or even register with the people who ought to be disturbed by it. So when you put that together with everything else that I started the podcast with... We don't have any moorings. We are entering some kind of... Uh, again, uh, the fact that we don't have a good language for this and that we sound like amateur philosophers or, or college freshmen, you know, trying to talk about it. The fact that, we are, that reality is somehow losing its grip, that we don't have a common world of fact, that we have a a president who seems to find that whole notion alien to him is deeply disturbing, and it certainly has huge implications for journalism. So in the last year when people have been talking about a sort of post-fact era um, – Which they, is a terrible name. Terrible name. Right. What we does can, that really mean? But yes. Better, we're, yeah. we're full of terrible names, yes. right? Fake news. Exactly. We're all just fumbling around it like you said. Yeah. Maybe we're half stoned because we're freshmen in college. I think people say, oh, this is the internet. And yeah. it's Facebook. Right. Um, and everyone gets to pick their own thing. And I'm sure that's true. But I keep thinking, wait, Fox News has been on the air for 20 years. And they've really been pushing an alternate re version of reality. And that's been pretty powerful. And I think to let them off the hook in this discussion is unfair. Yeah. Because, you know, Obama, birtherism, any version of that, all the ills of the, the Clintons that, that were not true, the, um, you, you found a home for those on Fox News that was powerful and, and pushing the stuff out long before the internet. Are, are we giving them a pass just because we've now accepted that as sort of mainstream? I think that's a very good point. Um, Fox News has been pushing an alternate reality for a long time. They did it behind, strategically behind a, a slogan – fair and balanced that was meant to mock um, the claims of the mainstream media. Right. But if you, if you, by the way, if you ever said to Roger Ailes or anyone under him, I know you're kidding, right? I mean, on the joke, they would get furious. Yeah. They, they, they really carried it. Totally. Straight-faced. Yeah. And so that, as I said, has been building for a, a long time. One of the interesting things about that is, though, that people in the right-wing media machine, people at Fox, people who had large audiences on talk radio, have been telling their listeners for a long time, um, don't believe the mainstream media. But they themselves began their day by reading the New York Times. Right. They didn't, they didn't start the day and say, everything in that newspaper is a lie. They took it as 
the news of the day, yes, with a liberal spin, right? And they would try and unspin it for themselves right? and, and warn their audiences against that. But they never looked at the news coming out of the major news organizations and saying, that is all fake. I guess I remember, but I remember Rush Limbaugh and driving around listening to AM talk radio aghast in, in the early 90s and Vince Foster stuff. I mean, there was a, and, and maybe it was just a smaller sector of the world that, that got to that stuff. But there was a whole... I'm going to say the word anyway because it's a um, fake news version of the Clintons that, that you could find easily no, let me, by let me turning, on, what by I turning said. on the radio. What I, let me repeat what I said. They told their audiences this is fake. Yeah. They told their audiences don't believe a word of it. That's made up. I'm saying that individually themselves, they didn't think that way. Right. <laughs> now people uh, who are – sort of refugees from right-wing radio, like Charlie Sykes, right. are saying, you know what? We took this too far. We made a Frankenstein. Because our listeners, there's no way to tell them that the thing that they just said they believed is factually incorrect. There's no way to correct some of these lies and conspiracy theories and mythologies that the right-wing believes. And we... We don't really know what to do about that because we have taught our audiences that there is no such thing as a fact check. So we're talking about structural stuff, and, and we'll talk about more of it in a bit. Um, there is one sort of practical thing I want to talk to you about that's top of mind with me. Some of the, the coverage that I'm reading from the press about the way Trump is interacting with the press um, seems to focus on, well, here's the way the president normally interacts with the press. You have a mm. press pool. Right. You have press conferences. When you have a press conference, you're supposed to behave this way. Right. You let CNN answer a question because CNN is part of the established media. We get to be in a room in the White House. And the Trump folks systematically saying, nope, 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 we're not doing all of that. They take great delight right. in pushing that stuff. And as someone who, who doesn't participate in that world, right? I've never gone to a White House press conference. I don't write about uh, Washington politics. But as someone who reads this stuff pretty carefully, I keep thinking all the things the press is complaining about seem to be like uh, the complaint of someone who's used to a position of privilege, mm. who's lost that privilege, and is not complaining about the right thing. Mm -hmm. I agree with that. Okay, good. Uh, I, I don't feel I, so bad. I think um, especially the White House press corps, which is just one division of the Washington press corps. Right. But the White House press corps is almost engaged in a kind of magical thinking where if we can just preserve the forms and conventions and rituals of the job, then the job will remain the same. And, right? if, and so if they, if they let us have the room right. that's literally the above the pool right. in the White House, it's okay. But if they move yeah. us 50 feet out, that's really bad. That's right. And, and they're not capable of being strategic about what they – defend fiercely and what they let go, right? Because they can't distinguish between things that are just conventions um, that don't have any real force behind them and things that are truly important. So I'll give you an example. If there is nobody on the White House grounds to see who's coming and leaving, like who's actually meeting with the president, that's a big deal because he may be meeting with all kinds of people who are sort of questionable or where the, the question is, why are they coming to the White House? And if we can't see them um, and there's no opportunity to ask them, what did you talk about, for example, that is a big loss. So that's really important. 
whether there is a televised briefing or it's not televised is not central to the republic, right? And so the White House press is, I think, is so anxious about what is going to happen that they're just holding on to things that the, the way they used to be as if that will kind of like make it better. And it's not going to be better. It's going to be worse, way worse. What is the thing they should be focused on instead? Well, it's very important to try and find out what is going on in this administration. It is not important for the press to have this theatrical role as the inquisitor every day in the briefing room. And being on camera isn't necessarily important. Right, what you idea, can find out is the idea is of the important. live White House briefing. That's a newish it's a new idea. Thing. If, it, if, if it doesn't, if it's not live every day, if it's not on camera every day, that's not a central matter, right? Things like freedom of information requests and getting responses to those, that's like way more important. Right, which they're not going to get. I mean, the no. Obama White House wasn't good No, about they're not. Stuff. And so one of the things that I want to see the White House press corps do, they had a, a town meeting uh, a couple – a week ago where the members of the association got together to talk to their leadership. Usually they have about 40 people there. That today, This year they yeah. had 100 people there, right? What are they talking about? They're talking about preserving the briefing. They should be talking about how do we operate under conditions of semi-authoritarian rule? What can we learn from countries where that kind of shift has overtaken the political system? How do we shift from – inside-out reporting to outside-in reporting. Those are the kinds of things that I think they should be deliberating about. These are all kind of things that you talk about in your in your posts. I want to talk about that in a minute. First, we're going to hear from me talking about something that I'm doing. If you like this kind of conversation, and if you like conversations about media in general, and maybe you'd like to do them somewhere sunny in mid-February, that's a really good idea. You should come out to Code Media. That's our annual media conference, a day and a half, with me and Kara Swisher and Walt Mossberg and people who do things in media like Washington Post editor Marty Barron and Eddie Q, who runs uh, media for Apple, and Roy Price runs video for Amazon. I keep talking about it, but I have an endorsement here from Joe Marchese, who runs digital uh, advertising for Fox. Joe? It's great. I enjoyed it. I enjoy the people there, and I enjoy the quick conversations on stage right into networking and discussing them live with the same people. Thanks, Joe. Thanks to you guys for listening. If you want to join us, you go to recode.net. Click on events. You'll figure out how to sign up. I will see you there. Jay, I'm back. I'm just thinking about what it's going to be like to hang out in February at Ritz-Carlton mm. Pacific. Pretty nice. Sounds nice. But we'll talk about Trump. We'll, have, we'll talk, especially with Marty Barron, but I think a lot of the folks there are thinking about Trump, um, even though they're not doing coverage of the White House. You think about this stuff all the time. We were talking about some of the things the press corps can do, some of the things they can't do. I mean, that's a, I think a lot of what you're talking about is some of this stuff is structural and there's really no way for the press to really properly get out of this hole they're in. One of the things I think about a lot, you and I sort of tweeted at each other about it is if Trump is at best just sort of talking without any sort of thought about what he's saying and worst case scenarios is actively lying. If he's got people like Kellyanne Conway actively lying on mm -hmm. his behalf, uh, Sean Spicer actively lying. And we've, again, tolerated lying and spinning from administration representatives for a long time, but th this seems beyond the pale. Mm. Should the press stop interviewing them? Should they stop asking them questions? Should they stop putting them on the air? And do you distinguish between asking Kellyanne Conway a question and asking Donald Trump a question? If Donald Trump's going to go on a podium and say things that have no relation to reality, do you keep the camera on? Well, what I have said is, I don't think the people interviewing Kellyanne Conway know why they are doing that, meaning 
that the journalistic logic of it is growing dimmer with every interview. Because the journalistic logic is, we've heard from one side, let's ask the, let's ask the yes, president. Yes, and also, Peter, the, the logic is, this is a representative of the president. This is somebody who can speak for the Trump administration. But if we find that what Kelly and Conway says is routinely or easily contradicted by Donald Trump, then that rationale disappears. Another reason to interview Kelly and Conway is our viewers want to understand how the Trump world thinks. But if what the end result of an interview with her is is more confusion about what the Trump world thinks, then that rationale evaporates. So it's so not the I, lying, it's the it's that just not consistent. No, it's not it's not it's not just lying or spin or somebody who is skilled in the political arts of putting the best case on things. Not answering a question. Or not answering a question, which is a pretty basic method of doing politics. It's that when you are done listening to Kellyanne Conway, you probably understand less. That's a problem. So, so if that's the case, and uh, you're Jim Rutenberg and you're writing an article about Bill Maher this weekend, or you do anything, should you stop asking Kellyanne Conway for comments? Should you stop putting? And if you're CNN, should you stop putting them on the air? Uh, CNN this weekend, I think, tweeted, as we know, um, just because Sean Spicer says something or something from the, someone from the Trump administration says something, I'm butchering the, the tweet, um, doesn't mean it's necessarily true. Mm. If CNN now is saying as a organization that we know consistently we're not going to get truthful things from, from these people, why put them on air? Or do you think well, they should? I, I think that is a question CNN should be asking itself. Either you take special measures so that after these people appear, you have something on air that kind of responds to that, checks that, right, that, that undoes the confusion mm-hmm. <laughs> that they just created. Maybe that. Or you shift your rationale and you explain candidly to people, uh, we're having them on um, just to prevent us from being criticized or we're having them on because it's entertaining or look, we need conflict, right? So just like be, be real about it and, and say this isn't actually of journalistic value. It has a different value and that's why we're putting it on the air. Put the Benny Hill theme. Sort of in the yeah, whatever, or a Chiron solution. I don't know. So there's got to be you know, some way of just don't pretend that this is a normal interview with the normal rationale. So we, we were talking about this before the break, the idea that the press has been getting together and having these discussions, like in that case, sort of about the institutional behavior that they, they want to encourage or not. People broadly say the press has to get together and act together and mm-hmm. defend itself. Yeah. I think you're skeptical about that idea. I but am. I think you also are endorsing it. Well, the way I think about it is the press as an institution is is a very weak institution. And part of the reason for that is it's very difficult for it to act in coordination. I call it a phrase from Harold Rosenberg, the great mid-century critic, a herd of independent minds, meaning everybody in journalism thinks of themselves as a maverick. Right. And they, they've got their own thing. Their they have own their own pushing. bosses and yeah. they have their own audiences. Yeah, we got our own thing. And, and yet they're very conformist. Right. Right. So you have to understand that about the press. But it, there, there really aren't any strong institutions that can speak for the press as a whole, for example. And it's very difficult to get this beast to change its behavior. So even something as simple as, hey, let's not go to these off-the-record briefings with administration officials who should be able to speak on the record, even that – which is actually a fairly easy thing right. to do, 
is almost impossible for them. And so an institution that can't act institutionally is easily exploited, and that's the situation we have. Would you want them to if they could, if they could get together and actually do things that were both symbolic and maybe even practically important? Well, there might be certain things that would be smart for them to do. I think my... I don't, I, don't, I don't necessarily tell them I have the answer. Here's sure. what you should do. I mean, I think the people who do the work, you know, really should do that. And I don't want to be like lecturing them in the negative sense of like, I know what's wrong with you. But I do think that they are under attack and the people who are attacking them and who want to discredit them are – coordinating in a sense. And, and they should respond. And they time. need some sort of response to that. And they need to they need to realize the fight that they're in. And doing good stories is not going to be enough. And the fact that that and you say this in, in one of your posts, you say, by the way, if they did respond and coordinate, they'll then generate more criticism because That's they'll right. say, look, the press is colluding. Sure. We told you they're out to get us. And a look cabal. At, here they are. Yeah. A cabal. I mean there's a related question for me, which is we're in a weird place, so maybe this is the kind of question we can't entertain, but the press is not the press, right? Capital T, capital P, right? The press is CNN and CBS and yeah. sort of mainstream stuff. And it's also Breitbart, right? Yeah. They are actually a press organization. They're a journalistic organization. You can do it in asterisks or quotes or italics if you want. So Glenn Green- Greenwald and The Intercept, um, there's all sorts of different people and they're a range of the ideological spectrum. Right. And it'd be weird if they all moved as one. And it's I don't think we'd want that. That's true. And from a, from a legal point of view, which is a very important point of view, all of them are the press. They all have equal protections, right? Uh, and when we talk about, like, who belongs in the briefing room, well, it isn't just the big organizations like ABC News and CNN. Certainly smaller organizations, ideologically inflected journalism has a place as well. So, yeah, they're all the press. However, um, there is a core to that body which stretches from – the PBS NewsHour to CNN to Washington Post, LA Times, Time Magazine, AP, the CNN. Stalwarts. Yeah, and that that's a very large portion. And within that group, I think you can talk about common beliefs, common practices. Um, when somebody – I've always found this interesting. When somebody shifts from CNN to um, PBS, which people have, like Judy Woodruff, she doesn't have to relearn journalism. She does exactly the same journalism even though she's moving from a commercial system to a quote-unquote public system. Yep. A, and because it's one culture. And that's what I mean when I say the press. I'm talking – the political press. I mean that, that culture. Now, you're saying you don't, you don't want to be prescriptive and you don't want to tell people how to do their job, but you do have lots of advice that you're giving them. I um, do. I want to go through some of it because I think we've established some of the problems they're facing now. Here's one I like. Zero base the beat structure. Mm. Yeah. I know what that means, but you tell our audience. Well, I recommended this as um, as a thought exercise, something that might loosen up the mind. If a big national news organization like the Washington Post or CNN didn't have any beats to start with and they had to redraw the entire beat system from scratch for Trump and this moment right now, what would that system look like right? if you threw out everything you started with? And a, an example of what I was getting at there is what the, Marty Barron has assigned Dave Weigel to do. He's a really interesting reporter been around Washington for a while, very talented. And his beat is going to be Congress, roughly speaking, but it's specifically the extreme right and the extreme left in Congress. 
Now, that is interesting, right? It's not covering Congress. Right. It's not covering the leadership, right, which are sort of inherited categories that aren't of your own invention. It's, yeah, at a certain point, the extreme right and the extreme left touch, right? That's one of the premises of the beat. Uh, but also that you need people monitoring stuff that what at one time would have been called fringe right. because the fringe is now empowered in some way that right. it wasn't before. So anyway, that's, that's so not a traditional than, beat. Right. And so the, traditionally, uh, you might have spent more time on what's the whip doing and right. how's this bill progressing. Exactly. Uh, and, and you still need to talk to Mitch McConnell and figure out what he's doing, but the stuff on the edge is, is just as important or maybe even right. more so. It's, al- it's also this, another element, very different, is what's a feature? <laughs> you know, like... These categories that journalists use to organize their work, which descend from basically the era of the print newspaper and make total sense to them, actually have no meaning to users at all. They're just stories. Yeah. And you know, what, is, what to a user is enterprise journalism? If you explain what journalists mean by enterprise journalism, they thought, I thought that was journalism. Right. You know? uh, what, is, what is features? What is, what is style? And so – what I meant was zero, by zero-basing the beat structure is not only how should we divide up this subject, but how can we begin to categorize what we're doing in terms that make sense to users? And a lot of the categories that seem totally natural to people in journalism don't actually make any sense to users. This is one that people have been struggling with throughout the, the Trump campaign and certainly accelerating since November. Don't let Trump's feed, Twitter feed, set mm. your agenda. This is a really naughty one, right? Because on the one hand, he's the president. Even if he or whoever's tweeting for him says something preposterous, that's still coming from the president or the president-elect. Can't right. ignore it. Right. And then part of you says, absolutely ignore it. It's nonsense. Or he's or he's intentionally distracting you from whatever. Who, who knows? There's more important things than what this person uh, tweeted. Right. But you say, don't let it set your agenda. So how do you pull that off? Well, I, th- I think it's a... It's a tricky thing, but we can handle one degree of complexity on this podcast, right? At least maybe one. <laughs> you can't ignore it because fundamentally it's not that different from him posting a message on whitehouse.gov or stecking, stepping to the microphone and saying, here's my policy. Um, there's no basis on which to exclude tweets from presidential communications. So you can't ignore it because it's an insight into Trump, um, but you can't let it set your news agenda. So you need a – a more well-anchored, more fundamental way of saying, here's what we're going to concentrate on today. And that means coming up with some way of dealing with his tweets without letting them overtake your day. And I don't think that's that hard. I mean, as a design problem, I think we could solve that pretty easily, right? We just we, – we, we can annotate his tweets. We can have a, a section where we just tell you what's going on in his Twitter feed and fact check it, right, without letting it become – uh, what we're doing that day. So over the weekend, John Lewis says, uh, it's not a legitimate president. I'm not going to the inauguration. Trump attacks him mm-hmm. um, via Twitter. His aides then double down on it. And that then is the story for the weekend. And on the one hand, I kind of get it. He's going after a major figure in, in American history, in American government. It seems to be yet another step beyond the pale. On the other hand, it seems to me that this is the exact same thing we went through last weekend, except instead of John Lewis, it was Meryl Streep. Not to diminish John Lewis in any way, but it's still someone speaking out against the president, the right. president reacting via Twitter, a whole series of stories about it. Meanwhile, the things that are going to be really consequential, right. we're not covering. Right. I have a little thing at my blog that I started a while ago. I haven't updated it yet uh, for the last month or so, so I have to do that. But 
have this little post-it note section of my blog called The Board in which I list... Yeah, it's really slick. Thank you. <laughs> I list the, the top problems in press criticism that concern me most right now. And it's a live list. I mean, it, it gets revised. And I, I wrote it out. Each it's, One's like a sentence with a link. Um, but it's there to remind me, but also to anybody who's interested in my work, these are the things I'm obsessing about. So I would like to see news organizations have that list. It should be live. It should be easily linked to. And they should revise it as events move. But if you have that, these are the things that are really important. Here's that our core. Here's our core that we're concerned, not topics, you know, not, not business news, but actual ongoing stories, stories that are bigger than one story, right? And therefore, revising it would actually be a big deal. If you could create that, make it public, refer to it, use it, actually believe it, then that is the ballast that keeps you from being swung from side to side by the Trump Twitter feed. Here are two that are related. I think uh, try threat modeling. You're going to have to explain that one. And then also... Uh, journalists need to think politically about journalism itself, which does not mean to politicize it. Right. These are, these are these might be, this might be two levels of difficulty. Right. <laughs> um, well, let's take the first one by threat modeling. I mean, we have a lot of experience in how um, republics descend into authoritarian rule, and you can look at what's happened in places like Turkey in South America, in Poland, um, in uh, Berlusconi under Italy, or even Rob Ford uh, in Toronto. and so the crack-smoking mayor. Yeah, and, and learn from those situations what some of the warning signs are. Like a, a simple example would be um, extreme things are announced that really freak people out, and then they backtrack a little bit so it doesn't seem so bad, right? That would be an example. Mm -hmm. So threat modeling is, uh, the suggestion there was, how would press freedom begin to disappear in the United States? How might that actually happen? Or how would um, the press become a completely impotent force? Like what, what, what would be the steps? What would be the warning signs? And try and articulate them before they happen so you know what to look for. And threat modeling is a term that comes from cybersecurity, actually, which says try to game out how our system is going right. to be invaded – and then we'll know what to protect against. Now, in cybersecurity, you can say, oh, here's various things we could do, and right. none of which I know because I don't know how to do any of these things. It seems like one of the recurring themes of your work here in, in these posts is there's not a lot you can do. Some of this stuff is structural. You're really sort of boxed in. So, I mean, you'd say try threat modeling. What would the threat look like? A lot of people say the sirens are going off right now. We don't need they to are. look for the, for the signs. They're here. Well – Yes. <laughs> in fact, one of the funny things that's going on for me now on social media is I try to give my warnings as I have here. To, and then people who follow me say, it's worse than that. It's already happening. Or winter isn't coming. It's already here, Jay. Mm -hmm. like, and I'm being like lectured to by people telling me it's worse. And yep. I, I'm thinking, well, it's pretty bad. Anyway, that's, that's just an occupational hazard right now. Um, I, I think that threat, real threat modeling would, if you conducted it and thought it through – it would help you decide what your priority areas are, what you should put investment in. To. So this this is a huge screaming air raid siren. Right. This is this and is, this an is alarm worth clock. making a big deal about, yeah. and this is a one day story. Right? Let's move on. And then thinking politically about journalism instead of politicizing. Yeah. It, that means what? Well, here's what I mean: is 
the press is a political institution in the sense that it cannot do its job unless people trust it. It needs a certain amount of support in order to function at all. For example, if nobody will talk to you because everybody thinks you're just the worst, you can't do the job of reporter, right? In Silicon Valley, if everybody thought Recode was like propaganda yep. and refused to pick up the phone, you actually could not do your work. And so your work depends to a certain degree on trust as an institution. And, uh, and any institution in that situation has to have uh, in that sense, a constituency. And so the press is political in that way. However, if it starts to think of itself as political in the sense of a partner with politicians, an adjunct to political parties, or as simply an ideological reflex, then no one's going to trust it. It seems like we're either we're there in the minds of some people you can see a place where the the, the part there where the press becomes politicized as a political actor yes it seems like that's just gravity is going to take a lot of people there and or they're going to go there by themselves like the new york times very much seems like it's setting itself up like the opposition party um i think the washington post is as well the times just announced this morning they're going to spend five million dollars on trump um it seems like buzzfeed which for initially sort of said we're going to be apolitical has really embraced the idea that they're going to be oppositional to Trump. And I think a lot of people would say that's a good thing, by the way. There's, it's silly to pretend otherwise. What's, what's wrong with that? Well, I don't think anything's wrong with it except that we have to keep in mind that doing journalism is different than doing politics. And when you are doing politics, your goal is to win. It's to win. It's to achieve power. Mm-hmm. To, right. And winning power is different than telling people what's going on. So even if you are an ideologically inflected journalist, let's say you are editor of a labor union newspaper, you definitely believe in the labor movement. You think organized labor is a good thing. You wouldn't have the job if you didn't. You still have to be able to say to the members and the readers, you know what? Your union leadership is selling you down the river. That's journalism. If you are, on the other hand, on the leadership's team, you're not going to do that because that's doing politics. So even in cases where uh, journalists are free to have an opinion, are clear about their ideology, the role of the journalist in telling us what's going on, whether people like it or not, remains the same. Uh, Kara Swisher sometimes tells people what she thinks is going on in Silicon Valley. She criticized tech leaders who went and met with Donald Trump. She's a reporter, but she also has views occasionally, and she lets us know what they are. I think that's ultimately a better way of being trusted than we don't have any opinions, we don't have any ideology, we don't have any uh, beliefs. So the, the view from nowhere that Jeff Jarvis talks about. Uh, no, that is that my, you. That's my phrase. Oh man, I now was, here I you was are. so pleased with myself because I was going to attribute it to the right person and not confuse. See, Jeff you and completely Jay. blew it. I fucked it up. Sorry. But let, let me let me explain something else that I think is really important here. Um, the, the economist Albert Hirschman wrote a really interesting little book long time ago, kind of obscure, called Exit Voice and Loyalty, and his notion was that when people are dissatisfied with a firm. He used the company, but it could also be an institution or political party. They have three basic options available to them. 
Um, loyalty is, um, I don't like the way the Chicago Cubs are run, but I'm a Cub fan. What can I do? That's loyalty, right? Voice is, Chicago Cubs, you're really ripping the fans off. And I'm really angry about it, and I'm going to tell you why. Right? That's voice. Mm-hmm. You speak up. Right? And exit is, that's it. I'm out. I'm done. I'm going to become a White Sox fan. And I think this is what has happened to the national media, is there were people who were just loyal. They, New York Times readers. That's what you do. Yeah, what you do. I, I watch Walter Cronkite, right? And that worked for a while. There's fewer and fewer of those people. Right. Some of that was structural, right? They didn't really have a lot of choice. Yeah, right. That, you were going to get news. Structural. You had a handful of places to get it. was control of distribution, things you've talked about on this podcast many times, right? So some people were loyal. Voice was always weak in journalism. Journalists were not great on voice. Um, they, saw, they said they did everything in the name of the reader and the viewer, but they didn't actually listen to them very right. much. Um, and that's been a big problem. And then there's been a lot of people who have exited. And if Hirschman wrote his book today, there would be, might be a fourth category, exit voice loyalty and attack, you know, discredit. Uh, and so what I'm, part of what I mean by a political institution is that. It's like journalists are in this situation where a lot of people are dissatisfied with the firm. Fewer and fewer are loyal. A lot of people are using voice. They ought to listen to them. Many have exited. Those people, it's very hard to get them back. And then you have others who are on the attack. So uh, one, one more dour thing, and then we're going to end on an up note. Um, about a year ago, I had Nate Silver on this podcast. It was the time where Nate was saying, all right, I, I, I get it. I was wrong. I discounted Trump. Looks like he's here to stay, and he may win the nomination. And during that conversation, uh, Nate was saying, look, one of the things I'm really upset about is the way that the media has really not covered Trump responsibly. There's, uh, they really haven't done a good job of explaining how flawed a person he is, what a bad candidate he is, what, what a bad leader he would be. I disagreed. I said there's tons of stuff out there. You can't argue anymore that in between last February and March and, and through the election that, that, that most of Trump's skeletons or a number of his skeletons were dumped out in clear view. Mm. Many people who voted for Trump said, I, I have questions and doubts or I dislike him. He still won. Now he says, by the way, everything you complained about doesn't matter because I won. Right. If we're in a world where, where both through an election and also behavior, getting all this information about Trump out as best we can isn't going to affect anything, right. should we just abandon all hope? Well, this is probably the hardest question that you've asked and I thought a lot about it and my answer is inadequate, but I have tried to answer it, and here, here's, here's how. In order for the press to recover some authority so that what it says about Trump makes a difference, which is what you're asking about. Yes, thank you. I think journalists have to conduct a kind of extraordinary act of listening that they've never tried to do before. And what I mean by listening is not ask people why they voted for Trump or ask them what they don't like about the media. I employ a distinction here from C. Wright Mills, the great mid-century sociologist who distinguished between troubles and issues. So I think what journalists have to do is understand people's troubles so well by listening to them that they can see what the issues have to be if the political system is going to address those troubles and then keep their eye and their coverage on those issues so that they are better representatives of what's bothering people than the politicians who are trying to make 
subtraction out of those troubles. So I understand that if you're talking about we have a clean slate and we're going to talk about what matters to America and what, il- what ails America and we're going to go out and we're going to figure out what, what people in real America feel and, how, uh, and, and we're going to write according to that. But now we're in a world where there is a smorgasbord of things that, that Donald Trump is doing that are alarming to many people with real reason. Right. Are you saying we should find out which of those things are going to be resonant with that audience and write about those and ignore the others? No, I'm, I'm, I'm saying that that's the, the starting point is having a better grasp on people's troubles than the political system does. That's the first thing. But in order to be trusted with the kind of journalism that's coming, I think there's other things journalists can do. One is shift from view from nowhere to here's where we're coming from. I think that's more believable. Tell the audience what the, the view from nowhere is because mm-hmm. it is your term. Yeah. And you should take full credit for it. Shifting from the view from nowhere to here's where we're coming from. Secondly – No, no, no. Could you tell people what the view oh, from the nowhere view no, is? The view from nowhere is, is, is actually a philosophical concept that, um, that we can observe the world without having a position, right? And that's – it's, it's a, an attractive idea. It's a, it's a seductive idea and it's also an illusion. It's bogus, right? No yeah. one actually believes that when you look at something, you don't have an opinion about it, and it's dumb to behave as such as a journalist. Right, but there are certain reasons why people put forward that view, right. even though it is impossible. So ditching the view from nowhere or the voice of God, which would be the audio version, right. <laughs> and instead saying, here's where we're coming from, would be very good. A second thing journalists should do is make it clear, yeah, we're coming from somewhere, but we've done our reporting. We talked to a lot of people. We looked at the documents. We dug up information. And so emphasizing that you have a view, but you are not just somebody who gives their views. You are a reporter is really important. Uh, a third thing is to shift towards the claim, don't believe me? Look for yourself. Don't accept it? Here's the data. You think we're biased? Check it out. I'm going to show your work. Show your work, right? So this this leads to the the and the fourth thing is is talk back. You know, you think we got it wrong? We're listening, and to be genuinely listening. So we segued nicely because I think you just covered some of this stuff, but um, I wanted to end on a up note here. Um, You say one of the things the press should do is learn from Fahrenheit. That's David Fahrenheit, star Washington Post reporter, is doing some of the things you're talking about. But explain explain why you want people to learn from him and what specifically you thought is worth emulating. He's done some great reporting on Trump and, again, showed conclusively that that his claims about giving extensively to charity were were lies. Mm -hmm. Again, didn't matter um, in terms of the election. But but, but, but what are are the – beyond being a good reporter, what are the things that you want people to learn from him? He was just named a CNN contributor today, by the uh-huh. way, yep. uh, which, is, which is interesting. Some of the things Fahrenheit did that are, that are really worth noting, one is he stayed on the story for a long period of time. Same story, right? And that sense of I'm not going away, I'm, I'm going to get to the bottom of this, I think helps produce trust. A second thing is he told us, this is what I'm reporting on. This is what I'm trying to find out. And a lot of reporters don't like to do that because they think someone's going to steal their story. Right. Did anyone steal his story, really? Did that really happen? No, it was a hard story. Yeah. No, no one steals Because when stories. you stay on something for that long, you can't just steal the story, right? So they, he told us what he was working on. Third thing he did, he did was show us his methods, like the call sheet, which I'm sure you saw, handwritten. Right. So if you haven't seen it, he would literally show his call. He would take a photo of it, post it on Twitter, right? Yeah. Here's, Here's what all called. the people I'm calling, which 
is not only transparency, it also shows people, man, there's a lot of work goes into this, mm-hmm. right? And, and then, by the way, it stirs up. If you're if you're not on that list, you think, oh, I should yeah, be on that list. Maybe I should. Right. And he got tips that way. They generated tips. That's right. And so, and so that, that's the next next thing he did was he asked for help. Do you know something? I don't know everything. Do you know something? Has anyone seen this? Does anyone know anything about that? Right. So he asked for help. Then people who followed him could see the results of all that work in the stories that appeared in the Washington Post, which is not only seeing the culmination of effort, but it's also, ah, now other people can see what I have been following. Yep. And there's a lot of satisfaction Plus, I help make this. And I my help, name's in it or not. I help make this. And, and people are kind of aware that not everybody's following as closely as they are, so they want to see it in the Washington Post, right? And then finally, he's a person with good humor. He's uh, self-effacing. Um, he has a good nature about him. He's interactive. Um, he's self-deprecating. Uh, and all those things, of course, make it easier to trust. So learn from Fahrenheit means he's showing you how you can be trusted even in a low-trust environment like the one we're in now. So there we go. we got four years or more of Donald Trump, most likely. Learn from Fahrenheit. Learn yep. from Jay Rosen. We can follow you on Twitter. Learn from blog, Peter. Pressthink.org. .org. Um, it, it does, and that, that billboard thing you have up there is very cool. Thank you for your time today. Um, this is a heavy discussion, but uh, informative and, and some humor in there as well. Thanks to you guys for listening. You know how to find me. You know how to find this. If you want to tell friends, that's great. If you want to rate this on iTunes or whatever platform you listen to this, that's also awesome. There are more fine Recode podcasts you can hear from Kara Swisher, Lauren Good, the Code Media Conference, which is about a month from now, which I told you about earlier. You can hear that on Recode Replay. Thank you to our sponsor, Amazon Web Services, and the digital media who distributes this show and helps bring in fine sponsors like Amazon Web Services. This is Recode Media. We will see you next week.